We're in a very revolutionary time now where I think this has been theory and conjecture for many years. Now it's really coming to its own. If you really look at it, payers win by containing healthcare spend. The manufacturers win, obviously driving revenue. Distribution partners, potentially, whether it's a pharma company or, or another group, win by having new products essentially in the bag. And patients win by uh, having access to safer and more effective tools. Everyone wins. That's one of three CEOs joining us to discuss how the relatively new field of digital therapeutics is redefining how care is provided. Digital therapeutic supply is expanding thanks to innovators, but what's the best way to use and adopt it? Today we'll explore how digital treatments and diagnostics are on the cusp of becoming mainstream. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and check out our online healthcare publication at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Fritz Heser, partner in the Health and Life Sciences practice here at Oliver Wyman. We're here at the 7th Annual uh, Oliver Wyman Health Innovation Summit from our mobile podcast studio at the Chicago Lowe's Hotel, where Oliver Wyman is bringing 400 senior executives from 200 companies and 12 health ecosystems together over three days to build impact and design the healthcare landscape. Joining me today are Laura Yeezys, CEO of SyncThink, David Klein, Chairman, President and CEO of Click Therapeutics, and Trip Hofer, CEO of Able2. They're here to share key takeaways from the executive session at this week's summit called Digital Treatment Diagnostics, Expanding the Healthcare Delivery Toolkit. Uh, the first question, Trip, is on why are digital therapeutics on the cusp of being mainstream across the healthcare industry? Yeah, thanks for that, Fritz. So let me start that answer with a little bit about uh, we're able to um, provide services, which is in the behavioral health space. In the behavioral health space, the challenge that we have, as most people know, is we have an access epidemic, is what I say, meaning that it is very, very difficult for uh, people to find access to high-quality care on a timely basis. And the challenge with that is uh, if you look at the demographics of those providing services, uh, most providers are going to be aging out of the system, and there's not enough, basically, supply to keep up with the demand. So in our space of behavioral health, of having a digital therapeutic available is almost a must because without it, there just are not going to be enough individual people to see someone face-to-face to actually meet up with the supply, especially when you take into consideration the millennials and them having a much different approach to behavioral health because for them, the stigma of behavioral health is a lot less than in older populations. So we're going to continue to see demand. The supply challenge, the curve is going to be challenged, excuse me. Um, and so because of that, you have to have digital therapeutics to augment the care that's being provided today. Fantastic. Thank you, Trip. And um, David, so why are ther- digital therapeutics on the cusp of being mainstream across the healthcare industry? Sure. I, I think at the highest level, when you have a, a tool, regardless of what it is, in, in this case, it would be software, that's proven to be relatively traditional randomized controlled trials, a safe and effective treatment for a certain medical disease, it's almost inevitable that it will be pervasive within the healthcare universe. I think that if you go broader than that and and really start to look at the stakeholders, you've got uh, providers who are ready. And I think there's a pretty significant amount of data that shows that. 
you have patients, I, I think, who have been ready for the longest. So patients are ready to use effective technology to help with treatments. You have then major pharma partnerships. So, you know, as you can see, there's a handful of very significant kind of biotech-like partnerships. The regulators have shown that they've been really collaborative and kind of fostering of this innovation and have begun to clear software as medical devices with kind of call it drug-like IFUs. And then you have really the payers that are that are coming around. You can see with the most recent uh, CVS and Express Scripts digital formulary announcements, you have now this new German law, I guess, that you must be familiar with and seems to catalyze reimbursement for the whole country of digital therapeutics. Anyone who can read the writing on the wall probably should. I mean, these are it's no longer will these enter mainstream. It's more when and, and how prevalent will they be. And that's a big change from, you know, even last year. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, David. Now, Laura, um, you're in the space of digital diagnostics, of course. So if you can uh, let us know why you think that digital diagnostics are on the cusp of being mainstream across the health industry, that would be fantastic. Sure. So um, digital diagnostics, I think, are, are really at an exciting point in time. And the reason is that they're solving a problem, that problem being lack of objective, quantifiable metrics. SyncThink and some of the other companies I work with operate in the field of neurology and the brain health. And if you have a brain health condition where it doesn't show up in imaging, so it doesn't show up in an MRI or a CAT scan or an X-ray, we are generally left with very subjective metrics. So neurocognitive tests, visual evaluation by the clinician, the patient's reporting of symptoms. These are useful, but not objective, quantifiable metrics. And you know, people are making important decisions. Should someone go back into a football game? Should your child take a drug that might potentially limit their appetite and growth? for 10 years or the rest of their life? Are you at risk for, for dementia or some of these other conditions? So the reason why I think we're seeing these technologies go mainstream is because they're filling a void of lack of objective, quantifiable data. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so, well, Trip, five years from now, what kinds of problems do you predict digital therapeutics will solve? Where do you think will progress be made? Yeah, again, I'll take a, a behavioral health aspect to it since that's where we spend uh, our day. And as I noted before, for us, it's an access dilemma. I think what'll be very interesting, though, five years from now, is how much um, how much does quality start to come into the conversation related to the access? Because I think it's one thing to start solving the access, but if that access doesn't lead to quality care, then yes, you provided access, but you really haven't gotten to the fundamentals of the type of support you want to provide uh, patients and members. So I think we will see great strides in access. My concern is that access to care that's highest quality uh, and quantifiable in terms of measurement. So can you look and understand the type of support provided and what has it led for outcomes? And so my hope is that both are solved. You have access to high-quality care that's uh, quantifiable and measurable because I think at the end of the day that will be best for the patient. Thank you. Um, David, five years from now, what kinds of problems do you predict digital therapeutics will solve? Where will the most progress be made? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for what we're doing, the most progress, at least from a more, you know, call it midterm perspective, will probably be in disease areas with, you know, very strong behavioral components. I think those are likely to be the lowest hanging fruit. Ultimately, probably within five years, you'll see that, I think, broaden out significantly 
almost every therapeutic area, so things like oncology and so on and so forth, you'll probably start to see diseases with behavioral health components go first, meaning the uptake in those areas will go much faster. And, and I think we'll see that in the very near future, actually. But then you'll start to see other disease areas, including things like oncology, follow suit. So I think it's a bright future ahead, and, and five years isn't that long from now. Fantastic. Exciting. All the way to oncology. And Laura, five years from now, what kinds of problems do you predict that digital diagnostics will solve or will uncover? Where do you think most progress will be made? So I think the lens I look through to answer that question is, what is the relevant clinical data that we'll be able to capture? So what are the sensors? What, are the, you know, what is the data that we're able to pick up? So for instance, in the cardiac area, we've had good sensors now for a couple of years with the Apple Watch and Fitbit and things like that around picking up heart rate. And based on that, we, you know, we've had a lot of new interventions. I believe that eye tracking, which is what SyncThink is leveraging, is likely to be one of the next big digital sensors. And eye tracking gives you that window into brain health. And so as eye tracking becomes available in a broader range of consumer technologies, we'll see that be leveraged. So we're going from eye tracking being on a, you know, $30,000, research-grade desktop device that you'd find in a lab to something that now can be provided to a clinician for, let's say, six, ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 to the next-generation AR devices such as Magic Leap and HoloLens and even the devices from Lenovo and others have announced that they will be including eye tracking. And actually things like Face ID and the unlock mechanism that's coming out in the next generation of the Pixel phones also incorporate some level of basic eye tracking. Not yet at the robustness or quality that's needed for clinical grade diagnostics. I like to say we're standing on the shoulders of giants, and those giants are Apple and Google and Intel and um, SMI and Toby, who are making technologies that will be effective and widely available. Thank you. Tripp, how do you think that digital therapy will transform the status quo of what health and wellness apps or pharmaceutical inventions look like today. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what a behavioral intervention looks like today. If you are going to uh, engage with a therapist, you typically will spend time first trying to find a therapist. And if you're lucky to find a therapist within a reasonable amount of time, which is typically not the case, typically it takes months to find a therapist, then you go and visit that therapist. And typically, by the way, your selection of that therapist is literally based on availability. So there's no real other matching besides that. You then go and sit down with a therapist and you literally have no idea not only what's going to happen that day, but when the quote-unquote treatment is going to end, if it ever will end, or what's next. And I really believe that the application of uh, digital therapeutics into the behavioral space solves a lot of that. So what does it solve? It gets you access more instantaneously to a provider's in a way where we believe you can better match providers to patients. You have full transparency into what is happening in that session and sessions beyond. And then you also know when the sessions will end. It's a transformative change to what patients go through today when they're talking to uh, behavioral health care professionals. And by the way, because it's collected data, all of it's measurable. And so then you can start to differentiate between those that are providing high quality care and those that are not because you can uh, measure the outcomes. So again, in this space of behavioral health, digital therapy and digital transformation is huge and key to the success moving forward. Fantastic. Thank you. That looks, uh, sounds very exciting, the progress that will be made in behavioral therapy. 
David, how do you think digital therapy will transform the status quo of what typical treatment offerings like health and wellness apps or pharmaceutical inventions look like today? Sure. I think we're right now in the transformative period. Um, you know, as I noted in the session, I think we're entering the time where digital therapeutics and specifically prescription apps, which are FDA cleared generally as class two medical devices with drugs like indications for use, will be commonplace in medicine. I truly think, and, you know, obviously I'm pretty close to it, but I can see at least Click is on the cusp of having our programs prescribed by physicians, whether it's for the treatment of major depressive disorder in adults or for insomnia or high cholesterol, whether they're prescribed in as a, essentially monotherapies or in conjunction with pharmacotherapies. I think that within the next few years, this will be common and will be on the cusp of just becoming how medicine is practiced. So we're in a very revolutionary time now where I think this has been theory and conjecture for many years. Now it's really coming to its own. If you really look at it, payers win by containing healthcare spend. The manufacturers win, obviously driving revenue. Distribution partners, potentially, whether it's a pharma company or, or another group, win by having new products essentially in the bag. And patients win by uh, having access to safer and more effective tools. Everyone wins. So it's a very exciting time for the space. We're seeing some very transformative things happen as we speak. Great. Laura, you had mentioned earlier how digital uh, diagnostics will transform the way that uh, diagnoses are performed today. Can you expand on how they'll transform the status of diagnostics and diagnostic paradigms? Yeah, I mean, I think the diagnostic paradigms in CNS are ripe for disruption. Many of them are just not very effective. So I'll give some examples. For dementia and for concussion, it's very common to use neurocognitive testing. Well, you have such a broad level of cognition across the population that, you know, without a baseline, those tests are not very useful. Well, all you have to do is get a few questions wrong in a baseline test, and suddenly the diagnostic test that's used later won't work very much. Neurocognitive tests have about a 50% test retest reliability. That has only been tolerated because there hasn't been a substitute. And so I think we're going to be seeing tremendous change because there will be substitute technologies such as eye tracking that will have test retest reliability you know, in the 90% range, um, no ability to game them, where you have excellent normative data by age and gender. And the status quo for a lot of CNS disorders has such important gaps in data for clinicians that I think uh, there's going to be very rapid change in adoption as these technologies become more widely available. Fantastic. It's really exciting to hear how diagnostic paradigms as well as treatment paradigms will evolve uh, to deliver greater value to patients. One final question. In the spirit of the summit and our discussions this week on building for impact across the industry, Trip, if you had no limitations on resources, money, or talent, and the sky was the limit, what would you fix about healthcare? Oof, okay. Let's see here. So I, I'm going to limit again to the behavioral space, if that's all right. So I'm sure it is. So one of the challenges, and by the way, I think this is actually applicable to everyone in the room, but one of the challenges that we have today is that we are being asked to prove a return on investment. And it's fairly interesting if you step back and think about that. So I firmly believe that mental health is an epidemic and we're in a crisis situation. And if you look at some other things, like for example, if we look at what happened uh, with HIV, 
and I remember listening to Patrick Kennedy speak about this when he said, no one ever asked what the return on investment was for us to figure out how to solve the HIV crisis. Cancer, all the money that goes into cancer resource, no one's asked us to prove a return on investment and all the stuff that's going on with cancer. And so I think behavioral health, unfortunately, there is a request that when you want to provide services, yes, you need to be able to measure them, but you also will be able to show a return on the dollars invested. And I would love to see that go away. And I know others in the industry who are huge advocates for behavioral health would love to see that go away. I understand that's how some people buy and how people evaluate. But if I had all the resources, I would ask them to lose the lexicon of return on investment in behavioral health and, again, solve the epidemic crisis that's in front of us. Well, thank you. David, so in the spirit of the summit and our discussions this week on building for impact across the industry, if you had no limitations on resources, money, or talent, and the sky was the limit, what would you fix about healthcare? That's a great question, Fritz. I'm going to go outside of my box a bit in, in kind of digital treatments. And, you know, I would say that probably the most atrocious thing about the healthcare system, in my view, that I wish would be fixed or that I could fix would be the lack of uniformity in patient medical records. It just doesn't make any sense to me that this hasn't been really properly addressed yet. And you can just imagine all that can be done in terms of creating a more effective and efficient system if every patient record was was known, essentially. If, you know, when I visited a doctor 10 years ago and maybe had a CAT scan, if my doctor today would have those data, right? You know, that would go such a long way in building a much more efficient system that if I could do anything in, in a healthcare at the, at the snap of a finger, it would probably be that. All right. Thank you. So, um, Laura, one final question. In the spirit of the summit and our discussions this week on building for impact across the industry, if you had no limitations on resources, money, or talent, and the sky was the limit, what would you fix about healthcare? Yeah, I'm just putting my, my humanistic hat on, which is, why I moved into health technology from being in a pure technology space. Trip, you talk about access and behavioral health. We have an access problem in general for healthcare in this country. I was uh, visiting two of my sons are medical residents, and my son Todd lives in Pittsburgh, and he has been on a rotation at this one particular hospital, and um, he's been working very long hours, and this hospital provides indigent care. And I said, you know, how's this rotation going? And he goes, well, you know, the hours are long. But because the patients have such lack of access to care, the cases are terrible, right? They're much, much more advanced. Now, for him, from a learning point of view, it's a good learning opportunity, and he will be better prepared as a clinician moving forward. But what does that say about our medical care, that people are dealing with metastatic disease that don't have to be, that could be cured with early intervention. So this question just appeals to really, for me, why I'm interested in health technology and, frankly, why I think many of us are, which is how do you give you know the best possible results? And if someone's outside the system, if they don't have insurance, if they don't have access to a doctor, none of what you know we're providing is likely to get to them. And so that's what I dream that will change if we had more resources. And, and I think as a country, we have the resources. We just have to make a choice to apply them. Fantastic. Thank you all for your contributions. It's been great chatting with everyone today here today in Chicago at the Oliver Wyman Health Innovation Summit. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. Thank you. 
The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. If you enjoy today's show, we invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.